0: Welcome to the Five Lives Podcast. And now Kim's story. Um anyway, so I've never really told my story like this before, so um bear with me. But um it's really not a story about anyway, about me anyway, it's really a story about um the Heavenly Father and his love for us. And so I um I'm just a regular old Louisiana girl from, from Kenner. You know, uh, kenner is in, in, in here, Kenner. Kenner. Uh-huh, was, yes, kenner that's it. That's it. Um, anyway, and, um, that was just uh, rescued from the pits of despair. And, um, and so I just want to share with you guys tonight about um, what God's done for me and the grace and the mercy and the blessings that he's poured on me amongst all of that. And so the only place that I could even think to begin um, would be, uh, I was thinking, okay, how do I uh, begin something like this? And so I was thinking about the reference of a daddy's little girl. And I don't know about many of you in here, I'm sure some of y'all in here are, uh, you know, use that as a title for yourself. You know, you yourself would call yourself a daddy's little girl. Um, you know, a daddy. Um, but I knew of a little girl when I was growing up that um, that referenced herself as that, and I just remember watching her. She would reference her father as as this knight in shining armor. You know, she she was cherished and loved, and respected and um, supported and pursued and adored. And um, and I just remember that was very an alien concept for me, and it was just odd because that was just not how it was in my life. And so I was definitely not a daddy's little girl. And so I, um, I grew up, like I had said earlier, in Kenner. And uh, we lived, my family and I uh, lived in more of a uppity area in Kenner, Chateau Estates. We had a nice house. You know, my dad was an entrepreneur. We were very heavily involved in a Catholic church where my mother was a children's minister and my father was on the choir, you know, sang in the choir and we held prayer meetings in our home and we went to Sunday mass every Sunday and we sat in the front row in the left pew and we had our home sewn dresses on and I'm just going to let you ponder that for a second and what that looked like in the 80s, <laughs> you know, with the puffy sleeves and the puffy paint and all of that, and so we paraded into church every Sunday, and we were this picture of perfection. And so, um, but you know, nobody really knew the truth. And uh, nobody knew the truth that behind closed doors, God didn't exist. And behind closed doors of our home, my parents fought constantly. Um, So much that for my seventh birthday, Um, Instead of blowing out the candle and wishing for a hula hoop or a pony, I wished for my parents' divorce. We were miserable, and nobody knew that there was abuse in the home. And although my father called it spanking, it wasn't spanking. So I was the middle of three girls, and it was, um, for some reason there was something about Kim, though. Excuse me just one second. I know this happens because I see other people do it, I so. <laughs> never got it until right now. And so um, I was in the middle of three girls, but there was something about Kim, and um, it's not something I really ever understood why, um, but the spankings were more of, of, of beatings. And so I'd often find myself thrown across rooms and pulled and dragged by my hair. And, um, and, and bruised and whelped and blistered and bleeding. And, um, and it was, you know, it was very tough to grow up in that kind of, you know, circumstances. And so, unfortunately, the, the spanking was, was, I say keep saying spanking, but the abuse was so bad, and just to kind of give you an understanding of the just Kim um, that I'm referring to, I found out later on in life that um, my father would actually spank my sister and I, but he would whisper into her ear and tell her to scream as if she was being spanked. But then when it was my turn, he would actually spank me. And so um, finding out that later on in life definitely validated the way that I felt growing up. And, so, um, and then the dysfunction didn't end there. Because of that dysfunction, it spread to the relationship that I had with my sisters. And they um, they quickly learned how to use that my position within the family to their advantage. And so when they would make mistakes or break things, they would get together and say, should we blame the dog or should we blame Kim? And I just remember sitting back and feeling so helpless um, because I knew if they decided to blame me that I uh, would not be believed and I would end up with um, you know, spankings or um, or even isolation as punishment. Isolation was also something that was used quite often, um, where I would be put in my room for days and weeks at a time. Um, that was before the iPad and the TV days, where you could like just keep busy. It was just me and my walls. So it was it was you know, and eighty percent of the time it was for things that I didn't even do. And so um, I just remember. Um, the day that anger just took over my soul. I mean, after having that kind of dynamic in the family, you know, you can only, it takes its toll. And so um, there was one time that I was once again blamed for something that I hadn't done, and I was punished for a week in my room. And remember just being in my room once again in a corner, just screaming out to God, why, and pulling my hair out and screaming in a pillow and feeling so unbelievably helpless within that hell and just standing up and looking in the mirror and saying, if they're going to punish me, I'm going to give them a reason to punish me. And then that was it. You know, I was never the same. The happy-go-lucky, um, you know, just full-spirited little girl was angry. Mm-hmm. And so um, when I was about 12, the, the, the facade was finally over, though. My parents filed for divorce. And it was the news around the community. The church community was shocked. They just couldn't believe it. We always looked at church family as if they were the Brady Bunch, and I would just look at them and say, you were wrong. <laughs> and so, you know, it was just, um, you know, the, uh, yeah, so, give me just a second. So, yeah, so after, so what happened with my parents, basically, you know, the fighting, My My dad was also very much committed to outside things like hobbies, and so that basically became the priority in the pursuit of his life. And so when my father decided, when my mother actually asked him to leave and he left, she didn't think that he would stay gone. She thought that he would get a taste of what it was like without us and come back, but that's not what happened. Instead, he um, was an actual... uh, private pilot, so he bought a trailer and parked it on an airport of all places, literally bought a trailer and parked it on an airport, and that's where he lived, and he didn't come back, and my mother was devastated, and I remember the day that she went dark as well, you know, my mother that was polished and respected within the community, that was this vision of what a, you know, perfect wife and mother looked like to the outside world was Out every night until the wee hours of the morning, drinking and smoking and cursing and bringing different men home, and I was at home unchaperoned and thirteen, and angry, and everybody in here knows that's a recipe for disaster, and so disaster it became. I uh, started looking for love in all the wrong places, like the song says, and so um, you know there was a young man that I started. To, uh, to see at 13 and 14 years old, and, um, you know, was in an actual long-term, for a teenager, long-term relationship with him, almost a year, I think, and uh, ended up losing my virginity at 14 years old. And um, when that relationship ended, tragically, as far as, you know, just abruptly and in a very dysfunctional way. Um, I was left uh, with nobody. At least that's how it felt. I had nobody. My mother was off doing her thing. My dad was gone, and I was just alone. And so, um, next thing I know, there's uh, you know another young man that shows a little bit of interest, and you know, and I was starving. I needed um, you know I just needed somebody to pay attention to me, someone to love me, to matter to somebody. Let me do this again, so. <laughs> Um, and so um, one afternoon, while being in uh, in our house alone and watching a, a movie, just hanging out, um, I the next thing I know, I, I I end up in a position where he's asking for sex. And I didn't want to be one of those girls. I didn't want to be one of those girls that had a you know a, a bunch of people that she had been with. And so, thank you. Yes, thank you. And so I. Um, you know, I said no. You know, I, I didn't want to do that. Uh, but unfortunately, that wasn't an answer that he was willing to accept. And so um, he forced himself on me that night, and um, it, um, you would think that it was this tragic thing for me at the time. Of course, looking back at it now, I definitely see it that way. But I was just so just consumed with darkness in that moment that instead of going to someone and telling them what had happened to me, going to my parents, going to an adult, I felt I had no one on my side. And so instead of taking this tragedy that had happened in my life and and slamming the door and telling him to get away from me, instead I used it as leverage um, to make him stay. Because he knew what he had done, he realized what he had done pretty quick and didn't want me to tell anybody. And so I used it and he worshipped the ground I walked on for several months. And um, it was distorted and ridiculous, and, um, but, you know, that's where I was. That's how desperate <laughs> I was for someone just to be with me. And so, um, but shortly, um, on my 15th birthday, my mother actually kicked me out of the house. You know, my mother didn't like me very much. I was, like I said, very angry, and I told her exactly how angry I was every day. And so um, she kicked me out of the house on my 15th birthday and um, sent me to live with my dad, which was the ultimate betrayal to me at the moment. I mean, She knew what he had done and, and so I was devastated. But next thing I know, I'm living in a trailer on an airport and it is actually this little bit of hope kind of started to take place. New beginning and new school and new friends and. You know, my dad was a little bit even more accommodating than I expected him to be, and it was going to be okay. So for two weeks, it was just like this breath of fresh air. It was going to be okay. And, um, but then learned at, three weeks after I moved in with my father that I was pregnant. And um, pregnant. <laughs> you know, that's a statement. And so I went to my father, and I told him that I was pregnant. And he didn't flip out the way I expected him to. Um, he basically just looked at me and said, you know, well, you do know that if you abort your child, that the soul of your baby will come back in your next child. You know, there's no reason to mess up your entire life right now. You know, we just, we're going to go and we're going to take care of this. And, you know, I believe my dad. I believe what he was telling me, and I wasn't going to fight him. Um, I mean, I'm definitely going to go there. And so I went along with the plan, and so we went to an abortion clinic, and, um, and it was crazy because it was kind of like the movies. You, they had the protesters everywhere outside screaming at you, and you're thrown into this windowless building, and I'm in a, you know, a waiting room, and then I'm shifted to another waiting room, and I'm sitting in a room with all of these girls, and and uh, they're doing the blood tests and the ultrasounds, and... and uh, and so when we left, uh, you, that's a pre-appointment. You, you go and you go and you do this pre-appointment where they do all of those testing to see what it is that you have to get done to be able to have your abortion and they give you a required waiting period. And so whatever that waiting period was at the time, I know it changes, um, an appointment was made and we left. And that was the plan. So um, I wasn't to tell anybody that I was pregnant. I was told to tell nobody and so I told nobody. And so uh, within a few days before the appointment, we went to go see a friend of my father's. It was um, someone that had been a family friend for years, someone that he, um confided in often. And so um, I ended up in a room alone with her at one point, and um, she, my father had confided in her about me being pregnant and I had no idea. And so she's in this room with me and she takes me by the shoulders and she looks at me and she says, do you really want to do this? And I just dropped my head and and said, no. You sit right here. I'll go take care of your father. And I just remember sitting on the daybed in one of her rooms, just shaking, just with fear. And uh, he wasn't happy. (laughs) He was uh, very, very upset. But, you know, we were able to calm her down and calm him down, rather. We were able to calm him down and... um, And, you know, when we left that day, um, the plan was to keep my child. I was going to, you know, have him raise my baby. And so, um, not too long after that day at the house, reality started to set in. And somehow, somebody got to my parents and had convinced them that I had gotten pregnant on purpose. Which wasn't true, of course, but... They're going to not, nobody believes me no matter what I do, so of course they believed. They believed a lie, And um, that was the day that the emotional abuse between my father and I reached an all-time high. It was the saddest day of, I've, uh, it was just desperate, just so, so low, lowest flow. And so he quickly told me that I wasn't allowed to stay with him, I had to leave. If I was going to raise my baby, I had to get out. And so um, um, about uh, a day or two later, um, of course now everybody knows that I'm pregnant, I get a phone call from my grandmother, which is my father's stepmother, and then his father, yeah, so my step-grandmother and his, and his, um, and his dad uh, were making a generous, selfless, amazing offer to take me in. Um, they lived right across the street from a high school in Mississippi, and they said, come, you'll go to high school. We'll get you a driver's license. You can come home and nurse during lunch break. You know, we'll take care of you. And it was just so, like, this yellow brick road of, of an answer. And so that was the plan. I was to finish out my freshman year of high school and move to Mississippi, where I would raise my, my child. And so just a few weeks before I was supposed to leave, I went to visit my godmother, who I called Nanny, and you know, my godmother was a surrogate mother to me at this time because my mother and I still were not on speaking terms at all. And I remember sitting in my Nanny's house, sitting on her sofa, and I just I always had these these eyes for her and she had eyes for me. I just adored her, and she was so disappointed in me. She just looked at me And it devastated me how upset she was with me. And I was 15 and sitting on the couch and had my arms crossed and doing the whole whatever to everything she said because, you know, anybody have teenagers in here, whatever, all the time. I have an 11-year-old and it's starting and it's been interesting. So um, I was doing the whole whatever thing on her couch as she was talking to me. But then right before it was time to leave, she just looked at me, and she said, Kim, do you even love your baby? And I just remember being, oh, of course, I love my baby, of course. And she says, well, do you love him enough to give him a chance? She says, you're 15. You're a freshman in high school. You don't have a driver's license. You don't have a car. You don't have a job. You don't have a house. Look how screwed up your life is, she said. Look how screwed up your life is. And your parents were, did it right. They had a job. They, had, they were married. They had a house. They had a car. They had a high school diploma. If they, if, if they could screw your life up this bad, when they did everything right, what kind of life are you about to give to your child? You have nothing to offer your child. And it's just... That was the moment that my heart went from a selfish teenager and transformed into being a mama. And I just wanted to save my baby from the hell that was my life. And so um, I left my godmother's house that day on a mission to save my baby. And so I still had nowhere to go and I ended up being transferred to a maternity home in Lafayette, Louisiana. And so I was now the problem of Catholic social services. Does anybody want to know what it looks like to live in a house with six pregnant teenagers? (laughs) Anybody want to know what that feels like? (laughs) And so it was crazy uh, in that house, and you know, it was sad. And crazy and um, you know, to be in a house um, abandoned, away from my family Um, but you know what was interesting is my father called me every single day Mm -hmm. I I lived in that home for six months and every single day he called me Mm -hmm. and so um, while in the home I think it would probably be what you would imagine, lots of chores and card games and we went to school and we had doctor's appointments and um, And we have counseling once a week, and so my counselor was um, just this angel and she helped me learn a lot about what adoption and open adoption meant. I knew one thing for sure, that if I was going to move ahead with this adoption, that I needed to have contact for sanity purposes. I knew that I couldn't bear the thought of not having contact. And so um, that's what we did. She uh, was able to arrange for um, several families to put together some albums for me to represent what they would offer to a child that I was carrying at the time. And so um, I I quickly, uh, you know, chose a family. The Albums were presented to me, and I chose a family, and I just fell head over heels in love with this family, and I knew... Immediately, that they were um, this image of the perfect family in my mind. I even said, "Will you take me too? Take me <laughs> with you? Like, don't leave me here." And uh, and they were just they were amazing though because they didn't just love my baby. They didn't just want my baby. They really loved me too. And so, um, give me just a second here. So. Like I was saying, his parents, the adoptive parents, were just amazing, so amazing that I wanted to just include them in everything, including the delivery. And so I invited them to be a part of the delivery. And the adoptive mom, her name was Stacy. is Stacy. And she was in the room with me, and she actually, you know, supported me when I got my epidural and She held my hand as I pushed and my father got there about two minutes before I started pushing and I had Stacy in my right hand and my dad in my left and before we knew it we had a healthy eight pound baby boy and we named him Matthew and he was perfect. And through the delivery um, there were some complications and so I ended up having to stay in the hospital a little bit longer than expected. Which made me really nervous at first um, because I was just, you know, as much as I knew what was best for Matthew, I was afraid of getting too attached. You know, you hear about those maternal uh, instincts, and so I was afraid of what could happen. And so, but then it ended up, it was this peace that just came over me and just really, you know, um, helped me to just take, embrace it, you know, and I really did. I embraced those three days that I had in the hospital. I wasn't left alone. Um, I had someone with me every night. My godmother stayed with me one night, and then I had a friend that I had made through the agency with me another night. But on the third morning, I knew we were leaving that day. Um, I knew that my fam- uh, the woman that was staying with me had to leave at around 6 a.m. And so I knew that family would get there between 8.30 and 9. So I had this small window where I was completely alone. And so I knew this was my moment. And my baby boy was in the nursery. He was waiting to see the pediatrician. And I just, I remember shaking, just calling up to the nursery and just saying, can I, can I please have my baby? And them not really wanting to bring her, bring him to me because, oh, but he's waiting for the doctor. And I'm like, you don't understand. And she's like, okay, I'm coming. And so she did. She brought him to me. And uh, I remember them rolling his little bassinet into my room and the sound of the door closing when she left. And the time that I had with him and picking him up out of his bassinet and unwrapping his little blanket and sitting him on my chest and his little lips were all curled up and sweet and his eyes were so open it was like he knew who I was the way he was looking at me and I just talked to him and told him how sorry I was how much I was going to miss him and that he was going to be loved and cared for and how great his parents were going to be. And that I would never, ever abandon him. And so he just sat there making all these sweet little squeaky sounds and I laid him on my chest and just cried until I couldn't cry anymore. And before I knew it, the doctor had come in, or the nurse, rather, had come to get him because the doctor was ready to see him. And so... They rolled him out, and that was my moment. You know, I got to tell him goodbye. Um, and so family came at nine, 9 o'clock, and it was time to leave the hospital. And um, leaving the hospital without my son, nobody can prepare like, your heart is only built for so much pain, and then it just goes numb. So getting in the car and just being like a deer in headlights, you know, just, (laughs) I was just checked out, you know, God took over in that moment, I know he did, and so I, um, you know, and then I'm, I'm going home, you know. I'm, go- I'm leaving. I'm going home. Thank you so And um, going back home to live in the trailer with Dad. It was like, did that really just happen to me? <laughs> um, it's quite, um, uh, anyway. I wish I had a joke to tell right now, but I don't. <laughs> <laughs> Deep breath. So, um, but you know, I get back home, and I'm living in the trailer with my dad, and things are different with him and I. Through the mess that I had just been through, healing was taking place for him and I in a way that, golly, how, how in the world could that even happen? And I know now it's only God, but you know, he had compassion for what I went through. He rocked me to sleep at night when I would cry for my baby. You know, he recognized the postpartum depression and the nesting instincts I was going through when I thought I was just going crazy and bought me a kitten to help me cope when he was allergic to cats. Like, he just really wanted to support me, and he told me how proud he was of me. And so, um, but, you know, going back to high school after that, y'all, it was uh, a doozy, you know. Going back to high school when everybody had known... What, why I was gone and what, what I had been through and kids are cruel and uh, it, was, it was tough and so it was, um, it was a, I I longed for my baby I longed for Matthew in ways that I could have never imagined the pain was excruciating I didn't think I could breathe take a breath, move I didn't want to live I didn't want to live because this is what the pain was going to feel like the rest of my life I just knew it there was no way I was going to be able. There was nothing good that could ever come from the pain that I was in. Like, it just, I had nobody that loved me. I had no friends. It just, it just felt hopeless. And um, in the midst of all of that darkness, I cried out for help to a school counselor where she broke the school policy and called a local youth group, which you know, if you're in a public school, you're not supposed to do that. And reached out to a mama bear youth pastor who scooped me up and loved me in the mess that I was. And that youth group saved my life, it really did. Um, I found God in that youth group. You know, I learned how to pray. I learned who Jesus was more than just the storybooks. Like, he was for real, y'all, and he was pouring out his grace and healing me. And I, it was my air. I lived for Wednesday nights, and I met my best friend in the whole world at that youth group He's here tonight. <laughs> and it was just, um, you know, it was, it was a, a, you know, God was just piecing my life back together into some figment of a normal seat. you know, it was just, um, but it was good, and, and um, I was still visiting Matthew as often as I could, and, and, um, and his parents were just supportive and loving and allowed me to heal, and so um, we were just moving forward, and I met the, the man that I'm married to today when I was 17, he brought me to my prom. And actually got to go to a prom, which, you know, wasn't something I never thought I would even get to do. And graduated from high school, and, uh, which Matthew's parents came to. They're that awesome, y'all. You just don't even know. Oh, wow. They're that awesome. They came. And so went to college and um, pursued a degree in elementary education. And then my fiancé at the time, who graduated from college before me, was transferred to Mobile, Alabama. And so I transferred with him, and we, we got we got out of town, and you know, and I just really felt this period and season of rest. You know, things you know, God was paving the way, even within the imperfection of what I was doing those days. You know, I had built a relationship with Him, and I knew Him, and I loved Him, and I pursued Him, but nobody's perfect, you know. And so we moved to Mobile, and I went to college, and. Graduated from college, and we got married, and before I knew it, we had two baby boys. You know, I have two boys today that are eleven and seven, Brayden and Owen. And so life was good. We were married, and um, after nine years in Mobile, we moved back to Mandeville, and so we moved home. And I have a brand new five-month-old baby boy, and in the midst of having, you know, being a new mom, and and. and just the craziness of moving and just life, you just, there's this fade that was taking place that I wasn't even aware of. Um, and before I knew it, um, my marriage was getting to a place where I never dreamed it would be. Um, we were fighting every day, just like my parents used to fight. And we were focusing on the material things in life instead of on God and You know, we hadn't found a church home, and so there was just this emptiness and this void there. And in the place of that void, there was this bitterness and resentment and disdain that I was growing from my husband. And um, there was no hope for my marriage. And so um, that was the day that Jesus met me at the hair salon. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, he really did, y'all. I'm not even joking. (laughs) And uh, I went to go get my hair cut one day. I had already contacted a lawyer. I was just convinced, you know, that there was no hope. And I was just so beaten down. And so I'm walking into this hair salon to get a haircut. And I'm in the shampoo bowl, and I'm hearing worship music over the speakers. And, you know, I've been to this place several times. It's just never had worship music on before. And not only was it worship music, it was worship music from youth groups. Mm-hmm. It was old stuff, like stuff I hadn't heard in years. And... And I'm like, ooh, that's a good one. And, you know, and it was just bringing me back, you know. And then I'm in her chair, and another one comes on. And I'm like, wow, that's a good one, too. And she's like, yeah, that was a good one. And so I'm just cutting my hair. And and next thing I you know, I'm just broken down on this woman's chair. <laughs> like just a mess, just bawling my eyes out. I swore I would never do this to my kids. I swore that they weren't going to have to grow up and heal from their childhood the way that I have. And I wasn't going to do this to them. And I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. I just remember saying that over and over again. And this calm, soothing voice says, I'm going to tell you what you're going to do. Mm-hmm. And my hairdresser began to lay out this silver platter mm-hmm. of directions. You know, the devil is in your home, Kim. Kim. He's trying to steal your family, and you're gonna you're gonna go back to church. And this is the small group you need to get involved in, and and this is the movie that you need to watch. And this is what you're. And, and she just laid it all right out there for me on this silver platter. And I just remember just sitting there, just you know listening. And it was like this awakening, y'all. It was like my spirit had gone dormant, and I didn't even know it. And now I was like, oh, okay, like I was. It was like it was, I, was, I was on a mission all over again. I was catapulted out of hell in that mm. moment. And I left the, the hair salon on a mission to save my family. Mm. And so I was, it wasn't even about me. It was about saving my boys. I wanted, to, I wanted to save them from the hell that I had gone through. So that's what I did. And I was fortunate enough to have a husband that was desperate enough in his life that he was willing to jump in with me you know and I just went home and I just was doing it and I'm like you either coming or you staying but I'm going and we went and we did and he was there with me and we went to counseling and y'all counseling you know it, it, it there's nothing to be ashamed of in counseling counseling is amazing and so supernatural healing was taking place and so we got in and in, um involved in a, in a local church that's just a life-changing church, and through the church, we uh, started going to a small group, and the small group's called Freedom, and Freedom is a small group that teaches you how to heal and process past hurts, and so, you know, and I was dealing with past hurts from the boys that I had been with when I was a teenager, and the abuse of my father, and, you know, trying to heal from the past hurts even within my marriage, and so we were in this small group, and And, you know, God was really moving and teaching me um, how to forgive. And, you know, golly, forgiveness, it's not an easy thing to describe, you know, but it really taught me how to forgive and, um, and how to give the transgressions that have been done to me over to God and trust Him and His judgment. Because we have no right to try to hold people accountable for their sins. That's God's job. And so... Through the Freedom Group, Um, you know, things were just completely, and counseling, and all of the things that we were doing, my marriage was completely and totally restored. My husband and I are more in love today than we've ever been. It's just crazy how God's transformed him, and he says me too, but um, uh, it's just been a miracle, and so it's definitely not something I did. It was God all the way, and so... Just to also mention that through freedom, I also, you know, learning about forgiveness, I really had a hard time um, forgiving my father for some of the things that he had done when I was growing up. And so through that process, I learned that when my dad was a little boy, he had two brothers that his mother would pretend to spank his brother, but really spank him. The exact same thing that he did to me. And you know, y'all, you just have to forgive that, you know? He did what he did because it was done to him and because, I mean, you can't do for others what you don't have, you know? And he had given me what he had. And, uh, and so, my father and I today, I, I love and adore my father. He's not perfect, neither am I, but I love him. He was the only one there for me when everyone else was gone, which is so crazy if you really think about the whole story. And so to close, I wanted to close with a little story about a few months after freedom, you know, God wasn't done. I thought God was done. I really did. You know, I was free and I was feeling good. And this this weight was just lifted off my shoulders and it was wonderful. And, I get a phone call from my Matthew, who at the time was a senior in high school. Y'all, he's in college now, and it'll be 20 in October, but don't even go there, let's not go there. He calls me on the phone, he's a senior in high school, and he plays on the football team, and he says, Miss Kim, I'm coming to play at Hawnville High. And he lives in Lafayette, y'all, and I I went to school. That's, That's where I graduated from in Hornville, which is like over 150 miles, and he was coming to play at my high school. And you know, I don't know anything about football, but he, of all the years, this was the senior year, he'd never played there before. He'd never been there before. And so it was just so cool. I'm like, yeah, of course I'm coming. Yeah, he's like, you should come as can. I'm like, of course, I'm coming, totally, this is great. Get in the car with my my two boys and my husband, and we go to we go to this we go to this school, and um, we're walking on up to the campus, and you know, and it's when you walk into this campus, there's this long breezeway, and it was like walking into like a virtual scrapbook, because to the right was the gym where Matthew kicked for the first time. Try putting on gym shorts when you're pregnant. <laughs> they don't make maternity gym shorts. <laughs> So and then there to the left was the locker pit where I used to hang out with my youth group friends and there was the area in the breezeway where I would sit alone after Matthew was born and isolate myself. And then there was the math building where I was ridiculed and judged for my decision to place for adoption and you know, and I'm walking through all of that and I get to the bleachers where Matthew's family his mom and dad are waiting for me. And it was so surreal. I remember getting up there and Stacy, Matthew's mom, looking at me and she's like, Kim, remind me, you came here after you had Matthew, right? I'm like, no, Stacy, that that gym, that's where he kicked it the the first time and she went, oh, Kim! And she just hugged me in the bleachers. She was just so wonderful. And so I was just, you know, taking it all in. I was sitting on the, on, on the bleachers, and there was my Matthew. I'm oh, like, look, y'all, this was just crazy. And here he was, and he was out on this field, and he, he's walking on this field. And, and I'm sitting there, and it was just like everything just kind of went silent. And I hear, do you remember when you thought there was no hope? Do you remember when you thought you had nothing to live for? And that nothing good can come from your pain? Look what I did. It's just this peace. in this bubble, you know? And I was just, y'all, it was like a, a sample of what heaven was like. And if God was transforming my pain into joy. And it was just He was taking something that was meant for darkness, because I know it was not his will for me to end up pregnant at 15 years old. He was taking something that was meant for darkness, and he was turning it into the most breathtaking light that I could have ever imagined. And so I just want to encourage you guys today, and I don't know what you're going through in your life, and, and are you even one of the girls that sat with me? at that abortion clinic that day, that when you weren't saved from the destiny of abortion in a way that I was, because, you know, I was you. It could have just as much have been me, and there's no more grace for me than there would be for you. And, um, you know, I don't know what you're going through, but I just want to share with you that you know God has really shown me. I can look back on my life and I can see him so clearly in every aspect of it. And it and it wasn't because I deserved it and it wasn't because of anything I did. It wasn't because I was out there reading the Bible or pursuing him or doing or repenting or doing the right things. He was in the midst of all of my pain. He was in the midst of all of my sin. He was in the midst of all of that mess and he was paving the way anyway. Not because I deserved it, but because he loved me. Mm -hmm. What I learned through all of this is that I actually am a daddy's little girl. (laughs) Just not in the way that I thought. He knows. It's just the most intimate. Love. And I'm so grateful. Tears right now are not tears of pain. They're tears of victory. Amen. They're tears of joy. They're tears of breakthrough. And so I just want to encourage you guys in whatever you're going through to, uh, to know that God is with us right here in this moment and with you throughout whatever you're going through in your trials. And it's so hard when you're in the midst of the trials to see him with you. But rest assured, if he can be with me in the midst of all that baloney, <laughs> he's with all of us. And and all of it. So, thank you so much for listening to my story. Thanks for listening to the Five Lives podcast. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or at fivelives.org. This has been a production of Five Lives Ministries. Any attempt to sell, distribute, or reproduce this content without the express written permission from Five Lives and its speakers is prohibited by law.